Hello, everybody, and thank you to Siobhan and Rory for inviting me to speak to you today. Um, can you all see the illuminations clearly enough? Because there's going to be quite a lot of them uh, shown there today. Um, to start by saying that over the past few days, uh, two days rather, um, we've heard that the Book of Ballymote follows in the footsteps of the 11th and 12th century manuscripts um, in numerous ways, uh, from textual contents, uh, linguistics, um, to conception. Um, and these remarks are true, or at least partially true, of the illumination also. Um, and we've also heard that in the context of its contemporaries, the Book of Ballymote is at times similar, um, but also at times different. Um, indeed, uh, a peculiar beast, um, Bernadette Cunningham and Ray Gillespie, whom we heard from earlier, uh, once described the manuscript as quite unlike some of the other lordly books of the day. And again, these remarks are also true of the illumination, or uh, partially true. Um, so what makes the illumination of the Book of Ballymote uh, simultaneously both similar and dissimilar from its contemporaries and earlier counterparts? Let us start with similarities. Um, in terms of illumination type, the style adopted is heavily indebted uh, to what I would call the style of the insular scriptorium. Uh, the dominant feature of the illumination is the historiated initial, uh, which appears in two forms, the ribbon initial and the wire initial. So the ribbon initial you can see here um, is a letter formed of the body of an elongated animal and was believed by Françoise Henri and Genevieve uh, Marsh Michaeli um, to have derived from the many small initials in the Book of Kells and related manuscripts. Uh, these ribbon initials alternate, as was general practice from the time of the Southampton Psalter in the 11th century, uh, with the wire initial or knotted wire type. Um, this second initial, you can see here, um, presents letters formed of a thick black line, knotted in several places, um, or, or just once often, um, and ending in one or more fi uh, finely drawn animal heads. Um, unfortunately, we have also already heard that none of the cited sources uh, in the Book of Ballymote are extant today, or at least not under their cited names. Um, but these examples here from the perhaps uh, controversial uh, Rawlinson B502 and the Laranahira uh, illustrate the degree to which the Ballymote illumination was immersed in the insular tradition in terms of form and style. Um, the choice of red, green, and yellow pigments in the Book of Ballymote corresponds to that of the earlier period, although blues and purples, uh, which do not feature in Ballymote, had also been popular, as you can see here in these examples. Um, in both Ballymote initial types, the letters are formed of anthropomorphic, zoomorphic, or geometric interlaced designs. Uh, similar, single excuse me, animals or figures are the most popular forms, um, although there are quite a number of cases where multiple animals and at times multiple species are present within the one historiated initial. A considerable degree of imagination uh, is illustrated in the choice of species represented, ranging from humans and domesticated animals, such as cats and dogs, to wild creatures, including rabbits, birds, fish, uh, to the simply fantastical um, with dragons and some rather unknown beasts. Although this variety of design and creativity may mark the Book of Ballymote apart in the terms of program of ornamentation, these examples here from the Lower Dunn, Lower Manor, and Academy Manuscript B22 
illustrate that Ballymote's keen interest in the earlier tradition was symptomatic of a wider concern for the past demonstrated among its contemporaries. Um, indeed, this was also true in other media. Um, marginalia and turns in the path also ornament the book of Ballymote. Um, in general, the marginalia consist of fully formed animals, um, those of the air and of the land. Um, so the first category here um, characteri are characterized by strong, careful draftsmanship, with strong beaks or snouts and sharp talons representing birds and dragons, of which there are five examples. Um, the land animals then are predominantly caline or feline in nature and are placed either between the columns of text or at the bottom right-hand corner of a column of text. In the former case, uh, each beast is outlined in black ink only and equipped with a head, body, tail, and at least one, although often two, front or hind legs. The interlaced ribbons are formed either through the elongation of the legs or tail, or alternatively, through the addition of smaller animals which have been rendered in less detail, often composed simply of a long ribbon terminating in either a head or claw. In the latter case, the designs in the bottom corners, of which there are 17, these are largely canine, with a few exceptions, notably a man and a rabbit. These creatures fulfill the function of the turn in the path, uh, presenting an aid to the reader, indicating that part of the sentence is the continuation of the text, either above or below, or drawing the reader's attention to a particular word or phrase. In the Book of Balimote, the turn in the path also manifests itself as a small head peeping out over the line of text, or a beast or claw cupping a word or phrase. The use of such devices was perfectly in keeping with manuscripts from the Insular Scriptorium, uh, such as the Book of Kells, which Heather Pulliam has demonstrated made extensive use of such readers' aids. There was also a tendency in Anglo-Irish manuscripts contemporaneous with the Book of Ballymote to employ body parts such as tongues and hands to gesture to a key element in the text. A copy of the Topography of Wales by, or excuse me, of Topography of Ireland by Gerard of Wales um, in Harley 3724, for instance, uses the combination of a manicule and the bust of a man with his tongue trussed out to bracket a uh, passage on the sacrilege of Irish priests. Um, in a similar fashion, the illumination of the Book of Ballymote can guide and punctuate the reading of the text, ensuring that crucial points are not overlooked and that the fluidity of the text is not lost by the last word or two having to carry on to the either next column or next page. Um, and while the style of illumination may be closely related to the great monastic compendia of the 11th and 12th centuries, and indeed to other Gaelic lordly books of the later Middle Ages, the scale of the programme in the Book of Ballymote departs uh, quite drastically uh, from the mould. This manuscript is unique in its lavishness, offering some 212 ribbon initials, 125 wire initials, 64 marginal drawings and turns in the path, two heads drawn within the letters, and a full page miniature, a total of 404 individual acts of artistry. Uh, to put this into perspective, the Book of Lekin, uh, discussed uh, regularly over the last two days, uh, contains only two historiated initials, and the Book of the White Earl, which was deemed unquestionably among the handsomest of the surviving 15th century manuscripts by Anne and William O'Sullivan, has a total of 15 historiated initials, and none of the other forms mentioned. Um, 
On the topic of this uh, somewhat lavish production, and obviously by association its producers, but without straying too far into Elizabeth's talk coming up next, um, I'd just like to briefly explain my choice of language. Um, I've selected the term scribe artists to refer to those responsible for the illumination, as I feel it's the most appropriate means of encapsulating uh, the division of labour in the manuscript. Unlike in contemporary England and continental Europe, where there was a very clear distinction between the tasks of the scribe, the rubricator, and the illuminator, surviving late medieval Irish manuscripts suggest that a single individual could have performed all of the above tasks. Within the manuscripts themselves, this dual, or indeed multivalent role, is illustrated in first the somewhat utilitarian nature of the manuscript uh, by comparison to its more uh, glamorous English and European counterparts, um, but second, the intimacy of the text-image relationship, which is often very close. Um, take, for example, this uh, rather bizarre creature uh, over there on the left as you see it. Um, he always reminds me of a duck-billed platypus. Um, he is particularly well adapted to his surrounding text. Um, and I think that it is, seems rather unlikely that two or several individuals could have coordinated their actions to this degree over the production of more than 400 illuminations. Um, and similar examples, as you can see here, of this close-knit text-image relationship exist elsewhere, such as here in the La Rimana and from the Book of the White Earl. Um, and so I believe it's reasonable uh, to conclude that the scribes and illuminators of late medieval Irish manuscripts, Book of Ballymote included, um, must have been one and the same, and that each individual was thereby responsible for the preparation of both the script and the program of ornamentation on his particular folia. Um, and while on the subject of the role of the scribe artist, uh, I would like to deviate for a moment into the realm of contemporary Anglo-Irish manuscript production, uh, where I believe work in the field can add something to our understanding of the Ballymote illumination, uh, particularly in regard to the notion of the turn on the path or reader's aid mentioned earlier. Um, Catherine Kirby Fulton and Denise Dupre have noted the peculiarity of the ornamentation of Bodleian Library Dice 104, which is a fully illuminated edition of William Langland's poem Pierce Plyman. Written in a Hiberno-English dialect and produced in or, in or around Dublin in 1427, the manuscript presents 73 miniatures in all, only five of which illustrate an event of, or episode of the poem actually taking place. And given the great number of human figures, more than half of whom depict speakers, um, including numerous examples of figures actually speaking in the lines next to their images, Kirby Fulton and Dupre conclude that the ornamentation served a mnemonic function, comparable with that used in legal documents from the time. Dice 104, they write, provides a unique revealing instance of how the makers of manuscripts intended medieval readers to use text image pages, and of how scribes and artists packaged a poem like Pierce for reader consumption. And I believe that the illumination of the Book of Ballymote is under, best understood in this sort of light. Um, Gaelic-Irish scribe artists, as we've already heard, uh, were illustrated in an educated milieu. The producers of the Book of Ballymote, along with their contemporaries, we're not simply transcribers of information, but members of scholarly families, various poet, variously poets, knowledgeable in law, medicine, literature, and, and keepers of history. Um, and as such, their illuminations are the product of this education, and I think may be used to elaborate upon the textual message of the manuscript. 
and in the case of Ballymote, acting uh, as a tool to aid the reader's comprehension um, and perhaps therefore a tool enabling the scribe artists to guide or manipulate the reader's comprehension of the text. Um, if we consider for a moment the discussion we have already heard on the list of texts present in the volume, um, the Book of Ballymote is a compendium text following in the tradition, as we've heard, of the books of Glendalough and Leinster, and true enough, the tracts are quite diverse. Um, but we have heard repeatedly over the last two days that the textual contents largely explore a similar theme, illustrating a bias on the side of histories, you know, biblical, local, regional, world histories, and a focus um, on historical and exemplary personages, genuine and otherwise. And such a historical bias in the writing offers the reader not only a lesson in history and mythology, but also establishes, I would argue, a historical context for the protagonist, uh, in this case, the patron, Tumultuck McDonagh. And in light of the sudden emergence of the McDonagh clan in the 14th century, a series of texts which return as far as the creation of the world suggests that McDonagh and his scribe artists were subtly or perhaps not so subtly, um, um, attempting to forge an association in the mind of the reader between the McDonough's and notable lengthy lineage. And furthermore, we have heard that the numerous texts deals, excuse me, we've heard that numerous texts deal with notions of kingship or authority. And again, taking into consideration that at this stage, McDonough's political career and somewhat improved social status were relatively young. And these texts, while ostensibly miscellaneous, uh, clearly indicate a concern for the establishment of both history and lineage and the patron's personal position within that lineage. And when combined with the notions of victory, conquest, heroic figures and authority, it seems that the patron and scribe artists together were decidedly creating a text on the idea of rulership and leadership but perhaps most importantly for the patron, pr prompting the reader to imagine uh, the establishment of a new and stronger lordship. And so expanding on this instruction or direction to the reader, the illumination serves a dual function. First, in electing to follow in the iconographical tradition of the Insular Scriptorium, the patron and scribe artists um, are visually eliciting ideas of the heroic past and the authority and legitimacy bestowed by age. This deliberate historicism places the Book of Ballymote and its patronage firmly, firmly within contemporary fashions for manuscript patronage, as throughout the 14th and 15th centuries, both Gaelic and Anglo-Irish patrons alike sought to imbue their great family books with the sense of history and tradition. And second, illumination presents a quick and effective means of capturing the reader's eye, and thus serves a didactic role controlled by the scribe artists and their ornamental choices. Um, each of the main sections of the text uh, in the manuscript is introduced with a historiated initial. Uh, the opening um, here, as we can see, uh, is dominated by a rather imposing zoomorphic ribbon initial composed of three some sort of crocodilian uh, animals. Um, the scale and vibrancy of the initial dominates the mise en page, um, and in practical terms leaves little room for further embellishment without eclipsing the left-hand column of text. Um, ornamenting the opening of a text in this manner is, of course, not unusual uh, in illuminated manuscripts, either here in Ireland or abroad. What is of interest, though, is the hierarchical trend displayed in the types of design used. Um, as mentioned earlier, the illuminations can be categorized as anthropomorphic, zoomorphic, and geometric. 
Breaking that down further, one discovers that only 29 of more than 400 illuminations represent an anthropomorphic figure, uh, be it wire or ribbon or a marginal, marginal drawing. So it's less than 10% of the overall total. Um, in each case, the humanoid initials have been endowed with particular features, which ensure that they are the most prominent or striking illuminations on the page. One method of achieving this distinction uh, is simply to have the anthropomorph as the sole illumination on the page, and make it colourful or sizeable, uh, and follow it with a paragraph of nicely coloured majuscule. As such, the illuminations, be they coloured or otherwise, uh, cannot help but attract the eye of the reader the moment the page is turned. Um, and I just to say that I say otherwise there because actually less than a third of all of the illuminations altogether uh, have been coloured. Uh, so it's actually quite a small fraction of the overall total. Um, and as such then, illuminations, as I say, either coloured or otherwise, but they can't help attract the eye. Um, in other cases where the anthropomorphs are forced to share their territory uh, with other illuminations, the scribe artists have employed all sorts of tricks from unusual forms, comedy, substantial elongation, size and boldness of the lettering, and location uh, to ensure that the reader's eye is drawn directly to the anthropomorphic initial above any other. Um, I would argue, therefore, that the scribe artists were attempting to instill a sort of ornamental hierarchy, deliberately drawing attention to those texts introduced through an anthropomorph rather than those with zoomorphic or ge geometric introductory initials. And going back to the earlier example of the dice Pierce Plyman, uh, the insistence on depictions of speakers, the use of satirical figures, um, and the particular sections of text selected for illumination led Kirby, Fulton and Dupre to conclude that the Anglo-Irish Ang Anglo scribes and illuminators of the manuscript, or what they call the professional readers, were interpreting Langland's poem so as to draw attention to those unfortunates like beggars and illegitimate children who suffer most in times of ecclesiastical corru corruption and political oppression. In other words, championing those who cannot speak out against corruption and oppression. Um, and of those who do, um, and through their ornamental choices, were directing their readers to do so also. Uh, so assuming that the Ballymote scribe artists were working in a similar manner, uh, which texts were they promoting through this ornamental hierarchy? Um, throughout the manuscript, anthropomorphic designs are used nearly always to introduce texts dealing with kingship, leadership, or important men in some fashion. Uh, two poems, one on the, excuse me, Uh, two poems, one on the Christian kings of Ireland by Gil O'Dowd and one on the Christian kings of Ulster are introduced through anthropomorphs, in addition to those presenting the lists of kings of Ireland from the time of Larry Neal um, and the list of the Christian kings of Leinster. Three anthropomorphs pre present genealogical tracts on the ruling families of Ireland. A single-footed hunchback figure, for example, introduces the genealogy of the descendants of Cúladochriach, um, and second, an uncoloured ribbon initial introduces the tracts on the genealogies of the descendants of Cahar Moore, High King of Ireland. Um, and third, the descendants of Conal Carnac, hero of the Illa in the Ulster Cycle, are introduced by the small figure wearing uh, a large hat. It's frozen. Sorry. Similarly, anthropomorphic designs are employed in the Lair Nagarth, a valuable text for those with lordly aspirations, and the account of the destruction of Troy and summarised account of the Aeneid. 
Both of these tales, of course, evoking notions of hardship and suffering, but of course, conquest and prosperity in the end. Last, but certainly by no means least, is the tract on the derivation of the names of the most famous men in Ireland. Um, arguably the finest in the manuscript, uh, my personal favourite, and our poster child uh, for the last two days. This little figure, um, described as uh, introducing art for the solitary king of Ireland by one, comment one annotator, um, is remarkably humanoid, uh, wearing this wonderfully bewildered uh, expression. Um, in carefully selecting and positioning their illuminations, the scribe artists are thereby directing the reader to those texts which refer to heroism, kingship, leadership, and triumph within a manuscript we've already said promotes no, no, uh, notions of history, mythology, and tradition. A member of the Nouveau Puissant, if you will, uh, Tomatak MacDonough, had little to lay claim to in terms of notable lengthy lineage. Therefore, just as other members of both the Gaelic and Anglo-Irish communities alike sought praise and public promotion through the Bardic Arts, and members of his own family sought the prestige associated with the Brugge title in hospitality, hospitality circles, Macdonough, I would argue, sought to legitimise his rule and authority as chief through visual means. Uh, so it is with this idea in mind that we now turn our attention to miniature. Uh, a curious and at times contradictory image about the iconography of the miniature and the fact that it exists at all uh, marks a departure from the norm in terms of Irish illumination from this period. Uh, by design, the miniature is a simple line drawing consisting of a ship with seven passengers on board, as you can see here, uh, one of whom is crowned and bears a scepter. Um, as we have heard, this image was always assumed to represent Noah and his family aboard the Ark. And this is understandable from the point of view uh, that the other surviving miniatures hailing from late uh, medieval Gaelic Ireland are also religious in nature. The Lower Brack, for example, incorporates a crucifixion scene into one of the columns of text. And stretching into the 16th century, Manus O'Donnell's Bacha Colum Killa includes a portrait miniature of the saint as frontispiece to the manuscript. Perhaps, though, most convincingly in this regard is the fact that the 14th century Okeanon's Miscellany already mentioned as having textual similarities with Ballymote, is furnished with a half-page miniature depicting Noah and his wife aboard the Ark, surrounded by various beasts, including both the raven and the dove. Likewise, this identification of Noah's Ark in Ballymote ties in with Henri and Marsh McKayley's conclusion that an, an English illustrated Bible was most likely the source for the design. This attribution is, however, troublesome. Um, from an iconographical perspective, while certainly there is a ship and there are passengers befitting a scene of the Ark, one cannot help but notice uh, that there is a general lack of animals in the image, with the exception of the bird. Um, and that said, there was a precedence for such imagery, um, often illustrating a simple ship or Noah alone with his thoughts in English contemporary manuscripts, such as the Edgerton Genesis, or in this production of an old English hex hexachuk uh, Cotton Claudius manuscript B4. The difference, though, is that these images generally form part of a double depiction or narrative cycle on the theme of Noah and his Ark, which later presents an image of the Ark with an open hull revealing all of its various furry and scaly inhabitants, um, now, losses, of course, over time could, of course, be to blame. And indeed, Henri and Marsh McKayley believed that, um, we've heard, we heard from Porrick already, that the Book of Ballymote originally had numerous other miniatures, which would have included perhaps a pictorial uh, introduction to the Lara Gavola. 
Likewise, images of the Ark, the illumination in Okeanon's miscellany included, are often annotated so as to identify the characters present uh, or provide narrative details, although again, this is not the case in the Ballymoat miniature. Um, and equally, the appearance of the central figure in Ballymote is a little at odds with standard depictions of Noah. Uh, the central figure is posed regally, adorned with a fleur-de-lis crown and holding a scepter of foliate pattern. The biblical Noah, on the other hand, uh, while he was deemed a righteous fellow, worthy and capable of preserving the human race, uh, he was not a king. Uh, he is typically portrayed as following his instructions from God and preparing for the coming flood, as illustrated in the Holcomb Bible picture book, or pious kneeling in prayer, as in the Bedford Hours disembarkation scene, both of which you can see here. The standard garb for Noah is long flowing drapery with his head unadorned, reflecting these quiet roles, quite unlike the central figure in the Ballymote miniature. So given this disconnect with standardized Noah's Ark iconography in terms of a single closed Ark and the perversion of Noah's humble servant role into that of a king or lord, I have argued previously um, that this image does not depict Noah and as Porek said, that there may be an alternative identification in the patron of the manuscript himself, Thomalthuk McDonough. Now, if accepting of this alternative identification, and I am fully aware that this may not be to everybody's taste, um, the location of the Ballymote miniature as a frontispiece is very interesting. Uh, during the Middle Ages, in England in particular, the choice of subject matter for a frontispiece generally fell into one of three categories. Either uh, depictions of authors, depictions of the patrons, or single pictorial references intended to capture the overall theme of the text. The frontispiece portrait of St. Column Kill, for example, uh, is a very fitting opening uh, to Manus O'Donnell's book on the, the Column Killer. Given the iconography, the Ballymote miniature could easily fit into the second category, that of donor portrait, with a depiction of a lordly Macdonough surrounded by his supporters. In consideration of the subjectivity illustrated in the selection of textual contents and the hierarchical trends demonstrated in the choice of historiated initials, I would argue that the miniature is not a textual illustration, but rather forms the introduction to an overall program of ornamentation that was designed as a lens through which the reader could be directed and informed by the scribe artists. Compositionally simple, the viewer's eye is immediately drawn to the crowned figure, though he is neither the central figure nor the largest in the group. Uh, his regalia have already been mentioned, his foliate scepter befitting of an ephemeral Slatnariha, a rod of kingship, or Slatigernish, rod of lordship, a key symbol of Irish rule. Late medieval sculpture, such as the 13th century hood stops, here you can see from Cashel Cathedral, um, and the corbels of Holy Cross, Abbey in County Tipperary indicate the crowns were also familiar symbols in Ireland at that time, while the preference for the fleur-de-lis motif in particular is presented in the design of two Gaelic tomb effigies, the first located in Roscommon Friary, commemorating King Phelim O'Connor, who died in 1265, crowned with a circlet of fleur-de-lis and holding a scepter. The second lies in Corkham Row Abbey in County Clare and is considered to be that of Conor O'Brien, King of Thomond, who died in 1268. 
Identical royal emblems are found on the latter carving, and thus it was thought to have been a former, uh, excuse me, a reproduction of the former. Um, and it has been argued by both John Hunt and Freya for Stetton that these Gaelic effigies were based on English prototypes, possibly resulting from a personal encounter between Phelim and the tomb design of King John at Worcester, dated around 1240. Furthermore, in her discussion of images of Gaelic lordship, for Stratton refers to the fact that it is not the crown, the fleur-de-lis, nor the scepter or sla individually which marks out the bearer as royalty, but it is the combination of these three key motifs. It is significant, therefore, that the scribe artist of the Ballymote miniature has included all three of these features in the portrayal of the chief. <coughs> In depicting the chief suitably adorned as a king, the artist is setting him in a broader context, as most everybody, Gaelic, Irish, Anglo-Irish or otherwise, can relate to the ideas of royal insignia. More importantly, the scribe artist has carefully selected the elements of the composition in order to conjure up key images of authority, drawing on easily recognisable and accessible motifs to further aggrandise and disseminate the qualities of his patron to a wide audience, be they, as I say, of Gaelic or Anglo-Irish background. And in borrowing from English examples, the sculptors of the O'Connor and O'Brien tomb effigies have illustrated a strong artistic dialogue which occurred between Ireland and its wider English and European context at this time. And this dialogue is also apparent in contemporary manuscript culture. Uh, the, red, the Dublin Red Book of the Exchequer and the Dice Pierce Plowman have a peculiar habit, uh, in an English context at least that is, um, of overlining or highlighting in red or orange red pigment. And finishing of a similar kind may be found in, for example, this drawing of the Banqueting Hall at Tara from the Yellow Book of Lecan, which also makes use of similar red and yellow rubrication. And so it has been suggested that these supposedly peculiar, this, excuse me, a supposedly peculiar Anglo-Irish practice was a technique borrowed from Gaelic Irish artists. And cross-cultural borrowing is also true, or again at least partially true, of the scribe artist of the Ballymote miniature. Continuing on the theme of physical appearance, the chief is dressed in a tight-fitting, long-sleeved shirt fixed with an ornamental belt tied in a figure of eight knot. This costume resembles that worn on the 14th century civilian effigy of Thomas in Jerpoint Abbey. Thomas is clothed in the Lena Criha, a long shirt of the Irish, which covered the top, top of the thighs and then flared outward, a garment which John Hunt describes as nothing but Irish dress. And this adherence by the Gaelic-Irish to traditional modes of dress is demonstrated in a late 14th century description of the Irish by foreign commentator Ramon de Perilous. In December 1397, Nilo O'Neill invited Perilous, a Catalan knight returning from his pilgrimage in, to St. Patrick's Purgatory in Loch Derg, to join him for a great feast at Christmas. And in recording his experience, Perilous writes that the great lords wear tunics without a lining that reach to the knee. They wear them, cut very low at the neck, almost in the style of women, and they wear great hoods that hang down to the waist, the point of which is narrow as a finger. They wear neither hose nor shoes, nor do they wear breeches. They wear their spurs on their bare heels. The king was dressed like that on Christmas Day. So were all the clerks and knights and even the bishop and abbots and the great lords. This description of the long tunic corresponds well with the image of the Lena Criha worn by the figure of Macdonough in the Ballymote miniature and the effigy of Thomas at Jerpoint Abbey. 
The description also corresponds well to a, to a contemporary miniature depicting another Gaelic chieftain, albeit painted in a manuscript of French origin. Jean Credens, The Book of the Capture and Death of King Richard II from about 1401 to 1405, depicts an encounter between Thomas Little Spencer, Earl of Gloucester, and Art McMurrah Kavanagh in 1399. The miniature depicts McMurrah as barefooted and wearing his spurs upon his naked ankles, without breeches, cloaked, and wearing a long pointed hood as outlined in Perilous's description. Um, and as you can see in the miniature, uh, it also depicts McMurrah and his two followers as bearded. And this is also true of the chief in the Ballymote miniature. And while this may not seem noteworthy today, at the time this would of course been a form of class distinction. While the Gaelic Irish were bearded, the English were traditionally clean shaven, a practice which was later written into law in 1447, whereby Englishmen were ordered to shave their upper lip at least once a fortnight. Conversely, the Irish face was adorned with a chin beard, the neck being bare. In contrast, uh, beneath his crown, the chief sports a smart hairstyle of a short fringe worn with smooth straight locks terminating in a roll at the nape of the neck. This hairstyle was fashionable for the day um, and other examples may be found in the art of this period. For example, here the corbelled heads in the choir of Cashel Cathedral. Completing a prominently Gaelic-Irish ensemble, however, this style is something of a contradiction, as this is in fact the English fashion. The Irish wore a Poulon hairstyle where the front of the, of the head was shaved and the hair grown long at the back only. Um, matters of dress and appearance were significant during medieval times. Uh, in terms of relation with the foreign power, public symbols of native culture, such as mo modes of dress, were condemned as barbarous and the wearing of Irish dress as treasonous. In order to maintain English costume, customs, the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1366, while prohibiting unions between the factions in terms of marriage or fosterage um, and all, ma all, manner, uh, all manner of things, um, included that every Englishman used the English custom, fashion, mode of riding and apparel according to his state. Um, and equally, physical appearance had a role to play in terms of notions of traditional Irish kingship, lordship and status in society. As Catherine Sims has demonstrated, that a king's truth and righteousness was confirmed by the absence of any character defects, such as inhospitality or physical blemishes. Conversely, a true king could also become false during the course of his reign by incurring a bodily defect or acting unjustly, the consequence of which would then be the suffering of his realm. So in consideration of the custom on the English, excuse me, in consideration of the costume and the English hairstyling worn by Macdonough, it would appear that the artist has deliberately amalgamated Irish and English styles of dress in the image of the chief. The explicit regal references of the crown, scepter and fleur-de-lis emphasize a sense of station, not, met, not uh, merely members of the wealthy classes, but of the nobility and ruling classes. And when combined with the precedence of looking abroad for symbolic inspiration, as indicated by the O'Connor and O'Brien effigies, and the deliberate blurring of Irish and English costumes set against a backdrop of Gaelic resurgence, the image is highly politicized. The result of which is a central figure depicted as lordly and powerful, fashionable and wealthy, but also prominently, and perhaps even defiantly, retaining key symbols of Irish power. The choice of setting, uh, a ship, 
does not necessarily need to reflect a seafaring reality. Uh, symbolically, ships were much used allegories in medieval thought, uh, in terms of church and pilgrimage, for example. Um, Chris Brady, uh, excuse me, Carl Brady, Chris Corlett, and Karina Morton have all demonstrated that ships were popular motifs for wall paintings and incisions in late medieval ecclesiastical sites in Ireland, such as those at Ennis Friary and the abbeys of Corcomroe and Moyne. Um, but more importantly, uh, as far as this discussion is concerned, ships were also popular symbols in relation to battles for supremacy or independence. Um, the medieval struggles between Scotland and England, for example, manifested themselves artistically, with both sides of the divide attempting to assert their own legitimacy. Um, and one case may be found in an elaborate theory of national identity in John Forden's 14th century, century Scottish Chronicle, which claims that the Scottish people were descended from Scotta, uh, daughter of a pharaoh during the time of Moses and her Greek husband, Gethalus. Placed in the bottom right-hand corner uh, of the table of contents, this beautifully coloured illustration in an edition of the Scottish, Scottish Chronicon in Corpus Christi, Cambridge, not only visually introduces the text, but symbolically marks Scotta's arrival on Scottish soil, and thus the arrival of a new generation of Scots. And likewise, a public, uh, popular depiction of William the Conqueror portrays him, him dressed for action, preparing to or disembarking from a vessel. Um, and examples of this imagery may be found in the frontispiece of Sir Thomas Holmes' Book of Hours and a miniature in Le Chronique de Bruges, which we have here, um, both of which present William in armour and tabard, tabard stepping off from a ship. William arrives on the shores of England and stamps authority on the land, thus marking the arrival of new kingship. And a similar argument could be made for the Ballymote chief. And um, just as in Holmes' Book of Hours, the image constitutes the introduction to the manuscript. And thus, the first impression made upon the reader is a grand scene of the Lord arriving by ship, poised, ready for action. Um, An imagery of figures such as William the Conqueror would have enjoyed a high profile in the Anglo-Irish world and their environs, uh, disseminated in a variety of media. And so it is entirely reasonable that the Gaelic chieftains, especially those with ruling intentions, and their scribe artists, especially those amenable to styles and designs outside of the traditionally insular repertoire, would have been aware of such powerful visual imagery. Um, in her paper yesterday, Elizabeth Boyle described a Christian worldview as underpinning all of the texts in the manuscript, even when not explicitly referenced. And perhaps that is precisely where there can be a meeting of minds in terms of the presentation of the Lord and the ideals of Noah. Just as the bard might comment on his, the righteousness, hospitality, wisdom and prestigious ancestry of his muse, the Book of Ballymote miniature visualizes such laudable ideals and presents its patron, McDonough, as a noble and worthy, worthy leader, and of course, a generous patron of both the arts and learning. At the same time, however, it cannot hurt no, uh, McDonough's image to be portrayed in the guise of Noah, a man esteemed by God and upon whom he placed the sacred duty of protecting the inhabitants of Earth. And given the scribe artist's flair for combining imagery, the design of the miniature is arguably, therefore, deliberately obscure and deliberately provocative, at once recalling notions of both secular and biblical power. So why was the Book of Ballymote so lavishly illuminated? 
we have heard that the manuscript centres around a historical and lorely theme, but not only do the individual texts themselves reveal a bias in the themes discussed, the illumination reveals a sort of ornamental hierarchy, providing specialist artistic treatment to certain texts. When the relationship between the illumination and the textual contents is taken into consideration alongside the iconography of the frontispiece, the miniature itself assumes an alternate or perhaps dual role. Earlier in the discussion, the iconography of the frontispiece appeared to fit the role of donor portrait. When viewed in association with the textual contents and the ornamental hierarchy throughout the manuscript, um, the the iconography of the frontispiece could also be deemed to fit the third category, a single pictorial reference intended to capture the overall theme of the text, which in this case is the theme of kingship and lordship. Considering the timing then and political background of the commission of the manuscript, uh, as put forth by Rory O'Higgin in the opening lecture yesterday, Tumultak McDonough's star was on the ascendancy, having survived raids, counter-raids and mercenary armies, his family had finally emerged from the shadow of their overlords and neighbouring clans sufficiently as to interfere in the internal politics of other families. At the pinnacle of Macdonough's power, the textual and visual contents of the Book of Ballymote present a clear message of authority and display. It seems fair to conclude, therefore, that this genealogical miscellany, or indeed a carefully structured work, as described earlier by Ray Gillespie, was commissioned for reasons of prestige and to promote the newfound heights of power and wealth and of its patron, Tumultuck McDonough, Lord of Tyrrell. <laughs>